0: Chris Foster. Before she became a successful jewelry and eyewear designer, Kelsey Sharon was an artillery gunner in the Canadian Army. She saw and went through a lot in Afghanistan and had to fight her own personal war when she got home. She says she got into jewelry making; it's therapy. The company's called Brass and Unity. It's also the title of her own podcast and her new book. We talked for about twice as long as I'd planned going in, and she told me after, it happens all the time. We cut the interview down for the weekday version, but there's no time limit here; it's the whole thing. Thanks so much for listening and subscribing. Now, Kelsey Sharon on the Fox News Rundown Extra. Kelsey Sharon, thank you for coming on the Fox News Rundown. Uh, the company, the book, um, the podcast are all called Brass and Unity. Uh, the book's out July 11th. I want to start with the jewelry and then maybe okay. and then go back. Um, describe the jewelry for people. Um, what you started making and what you sell now.
1: So what I started with was on the kitchen table with a pipe cutter, a drill and a hammer. And I beat the hell out of a kitchen table using uh, brass casings and beads. And ultimately what the goal was, was to... uh, allow myself to move past the suicidal ideation that was coming home from war and the trauma that I suffered there, as so many uh, service members do. So for me, we started taking uh, old casings from friends of mine and turning them into jewelry pieces, really raw bracelets and necklaces, and which spun off into its own company. And what we make now is pieces that are also raw brass, like our buddy check bracelet, which is our suicide prevention bracelet. It comes in a pack of two. It's a paracord rope bracelet, and it prompts you to call a buddy. Uh, You don't have to be a service member. You don't have to be somebody um, that has been in a fire police. It's strictly for... The connection of human beings and making sure that people are well. And what the whole concept of it is is buy a pack, call a buddy, save a life. We understand that there is a mental health epidemic that's going on in the world, and the least that we can do is show up for one another. So this allows uh, and gives a tool to start a hard conversation. So it has really gone from a tool that was saving my life to the tool that is now saving others. And the jewelry brand has been around since 2015, and we incorporated in 16 and very very quickly grew fast <laughs> really really fast and um, we've been able to help a lot of veterans a lot of organizations and bring a lot of awareness to what veterans and first responders go through on a, a daily on a daily basis
0: uh, besides the just the quality of the pieces and and your mm-hmm. and your charm uh, how did it take off how why did it take off so quickly when did you start meeting celebrities
1: celebrities was my whole life has been uh I guess the coincidence, if you will, but I don't really believe in coincidences. I believe that you're put in the right place at the right time for the right moment. And a lot of that is what happened for me. First and foremost, my, you know, I went to a trade show I wasn't supposed to be at and the right people saw my bracelets at a dinner. The next day I had a meeting. Two weeks later, we on Ellen's 12 days of giveaway, uh, with Beth bears, just because we started working with Beth on a, on her, uh, sexual assault foundation. She was looking for a piece to Uh, have donations from and then it spun off after that I was lucky enough that my mother is a very lovely woman and she was a truck driver for Kevin Hart's what now tour and she would harass him to the point where he finally agreed to meet with me when he when he was in Vancouver and um we went backstage just him myself and my husband and my mom And he gave us his time and his advice more than anything, which was really important. And back then, you know, we didn't know much about Kevin from a business perspective, but we understood as a comedian, he was someone I looked up to. When we got to meet with him, he gave me one really solid piece of advice. I wrote about it in the book. I tell the story. But essentially, it was, look, if you want men to wear this as well, you need to change the company name. And he was right. And at the you know at the very beginning, the brand was just called Her Wearables. It was just for me. It wasn't really for anyone else. And so we went home, we brainstormed, he tweeted it out to 24 million people, and we changed the name. <laughs> so the celebrity started to spin off of that. Once we got Beth, we got Julianne Hough. Uh, once we got that, we got Kat Dennings and Whitney Cummings. We got a bunch of different celebrities that came out and started to support what we do. And Really, what they were supporting isn't me. They're, they were supporting the conversation about veterans' mental health and what people struggle with and go through. And so it started really taking off uh, in about sixteen seventeen, which was a very interesting process considering I wasn't trying to start a company.
0: <laughs> mm. uh, and Beth Bears, people who don't know, um, the, the, she, the, the, tall, the taller, blonder one from uh, the sitcom Two Broke Girls. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. Now, going way back, Kelsey, you started Taekwondo when you were four yeah. years old. Uh you know you write, yeah. you write about being pushed around as a kid and sort of doubting yourself all the time did did it start that young?
1: It it probably started a little later. I mean at 4 I didn't uh I was also playing soccer at the time and when I was young you're a kid you don't really know, you know, what's bullying and what's not and and I'm very careful to say the word bullying because it's like a everyone uses that word. Everyone's bullied. Well, they're not. Some people just go through hard things and I think that those are things I had to go through whether I liked it or not at the age. It didn't really start till I would say roughly around six or seven when people started to take notice of it because I was dressing like I was constantly going to training. I walked around with headphones on. I was very, I secluded myself because I was very serious about my sport and going down the path of a professional athlete. And I took that seriously from the age of four. And so it was, I was an easy target. I was what most people would go after, the quiet one, the one that's kind of the loner. And I'm okay with that. But I'm I'm also very careful to say like, Sometimes we need to go through hard things in order to have the pressure to make us into what we are now. So as much as it was unfortunate then, I didn't allow it to be the thing that destroyed me, it was the thing that uplifted me. And so in saying that, bullying's not great or accepted and, you know, and shouldn't be accepted, but there's a there's definitely a line where we need to go through some things when we're younger to find out who we are.
0: Yeah, and when you finally joined the Canadian army, um, a lot of people join for among other reasons, um, the, the camaraderie of it, which you did not get during training. Why no. do you think you were picked on there?
1: I think, again, it was a similar, you know, looking back, I reread the audiobook recently recently um, when we were doing the recording and looking back. You know, I think uh, at the time I was and always had been for a long time, a really hurt individual. I went through a lot of stuff in my life. This book is chock full of stories that I've lived a thousand lives. I'm 33 right now and I've lived a thousand lives, truly. And I think what happened then was unresolved trauma, hurt and pain from what I went through up to the military and me not wanting to be close to anyone. So I would make sure that no one wanted to hang out or, or they wouldn't want to associate. And one of the best ways to do that is be better at them than a lot of things. Um, and so I came from a Taekwondo background. I came from an athlete's background in the truest sense. And I was very fit when I went into the military. Um, my job, fortunately was a job that women were allowed to do if you could show up. So I made sure that every day I showed up and I showed up to the best of my absolute ability, which, you know, sometimes people's light irritates others eyes so put a pair of sunglasses on
0: uh you were an artillery gunner how'd you get on that track
1: so i wanted to uh, originally i wanted to go infantry i was told at the recruiter's office i was too small um i'm five foot tall and 105 pounds so i can see how that that stuck you definitely you
0: would have been the smallest infantry soldier in the canadian army history and probably most armies history
1: yeah, all time. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm I'm always going for records, I suppose. Um, but I really truly believed I could do it. And more importantly, I wanted to be able to support the men to the left and right of me and the women. And so I knew that if I could show up, then I would be a good soldier at that job. Unfortunately, they said, you know, we think we're going to send you to artillery, which is... An M777, which is a 155 millimeter howitzer that shoots a hundred pound round, but weighs more than you. So we're going to have you load those instead. So it um, it was a career I was really looking forward to. It was the definition of support. When you are an artillery gunner, you are supporting the men and women up front. You are dropping the bombs to make sure that those people are safe and you're doing it accurately so you don't land on anyone. Um, the idea of being support in a combat arms role was all I wanted. So it did not matter to me as long as I was not stuck in a tank, which I considered a tin can. And in Afghanistan with the IEDs, they're just ticking time bombs. I would rather be I would rather be running and gunning or I'd rather be sitting in one spot shooting to support the people. Um, than in the tin can, so we went with artillery, and uh, that's what I ended up doing for uh, most of my career.
0: Yeah, you did a lot of um, you did a lot of running and gunning and dodging, and your time in Afghanistan was harrowing, and you get into it in the book. Um, and there were a lot of days, more than once a day, that you that you could have died over there.
1: I think when people think about Afghanistan, they kind of wash over the fact that the ground is littered with IEDs everywhere you go. And they love to use vehicle-borne IEDs like we saw during the pullout. Uh, They love to use donkey-borne IEDs. They love to use suicide bombers and children. And the sad fact is, is that place is a really hard one to walk around on foot. I got a really small taste. And I say a really small taste because I was with the British at the time when I got injured. And I was only with them a short period of time. But I was with them a lo- long enough to know that uh, I could understand why people were coming back the way they were coming back, and it was an operation that will live in the back of my mind for the rest of my existence. Like so many soldiers from the NATO forces, that war that war did a lot of damage um, psychologically to people, and obviously physiologically, we have a lot of we have a lot of issues with burn pits. We have a lot of issues with traumatic brain injuries and post traumatic stress disorder. And we have a lot of issues from just being, you know, if you will, that uh, that fight or flight state constantly. and it was something that I'll never forget. It's something I was very proud to do, but I was not did not go unnoticed that every time we took a step, there was a good chance that something would be close by that could explode,
0: yeah, you tell a story of just trying to uh, go to the bathroom and and had to <laughs> yeah. and 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 you had to have you know, help and detection around you, and then, okay, here's your spot. Don't move.
1: Yep. Wow. You actually read the book, huh?
0: (laughs) As much as I, um, yeah, I try. I do, I do my best.
1: (laughs) I appreciate that. Most people don't. So I really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I just, you know, I, when I was with the British, I was fortunate enough that they use, it's like a metal detector. And, um, you know, they would sweep the ground with it as to the best of their ability. And uh, yeah, I had to pee. And uh, when you're with a bunch of men, and you're the only woman, you figure out ways to do that strategically. And uh, fortunately enough, you know, I had people that would clear a spot for me so I could make sure yeah. I could pee without exploding. Yeah. So that's nice. <laughs> awesome.
0: Uh, do you mind talk only because it, this, this this story plays such a big part in the in the book? Um, do you mind talking about uh, Mick just briefly? Who he was and and what happened to him? And Was it hard to write about it, or or did it did it help you at all? Or or by then, had you just replayed it in your mind so many times that writing about it didn't really matter?
1: Um, I don't think the loss of any human being will never not matter. Uh, I think. I have perspective and time gives you perspective. Um, I was also 19 when that happened, right? I'm 33 now. So I've been able to look at it from all aspects, from the mother side, from the um uh, from the friend side from the soldier side from every every different angle I've looked at it I can promise you over the decade of therapy I've looked at it and um it never got easier it just was different the pain became less of a flashback and going into the full extent of of living in that moment but it came more of a an awareness a sadness if you will that People so young, the kids that we send to go fight these wars are children. And we forget that they are children. They can barely vote, for God's sakes. Yeah. And in Canada and the United States, most of us can't even drink. So, you know, the 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 reality is, is we send children to go fight rich men wars. And when you do that, you go through really terrible situations at a young age that scar you for life. And unfortunately, when I was with the British, we sustained a really aggressive loss that was um, – it's still hard to talk about. I read the audiobook a couple weeks ago, and you can hear during the recording, my voice cracks quite a bit during those situations, but it ended in the loss of life. It ended in a really traumatic loss of life due to an IED that the Taliban planted somewhere that ultimately Mick uh, hit with his metal detector and went off. And to witness that, and to be a part of that recovery, and to be a part of that operation and then have to just keep going 10 minutes later was a shock to my system and something I was not uh, trained for or prepared for, to say the very least.
0: Yeah. And I apologize for misspeaking. I didn't mean to imply that Oh, mixed, I didn't, mixed, no, death I didn't, didn't matter. That way. You know what I mean? I just, I was just saying that it, it, yeah. it's, at some point and, and you addressed that actually that by the, by the time you wrote the book, you'd gone over this in your mind so many times that it wasn't like, mm-hmm. you know, reopening a, a, that fresh of a, of a wound.
1: No, Uh, it's more of just that it's there. It's there and it'll be something I'll never forget.
0: Um, When you got sent home uh, and weren't allowed to come back to Afghanistan, what did your papers say?
1: Uh, I was, well, they were sending me home for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. I was diagnosed in country. Uh, I was put on a heavy dose of pharmaceutical medications and sent home to an empty airport to figure out a way to get to a base and then to only be told to drive another I think it's roughly 12 hours to a hospital in Ottawa. And I would hear from the military when I heard from them. You know, it was a real, uh, we were at a time in Afghanistan where at least Canada was, where we were just starting to get rocked, meaning we were just starting to lose a lot of people. We were just starting to see people come home with mental health issues that our basically our chain of command didn't know how to handle, nor did they know what to do with. So once I was diagnosed, I was put on 11 different pharmaceutical drugs, um, put back on the machine gun before I left <clears throat> and uh then eventually sent back home three weeks before the rest of my unit. And and I say those things and I highlight the pharmaceutical intervention because there is uh, an over-prescribing uses as guinea pigs, and it makes me really frustrated because you know, Jocko said something to me one day that I think is really important to highlight, and that is if somebody said to you, sat you down and said, What you're feeling is normal, what happened to you is normal you will recover, your body will acclimate, and you will be okay, and we have your back, do you think you would have been okay? And having a decade to look at that, I fully and wholeheartedly believe yes, I think I would have been okay. But that's not how it was handled, unfortunately. And so because of that, it just took a longer way around to get better.
0: Yeah, and you write about, and you've spoken about, you, you mentioned a decade, and um and you write about not regret about, um, you write about regret of not being the best mom you could be to Jack, the Mm -hmm. best husband you could be to Brady because of those, I don't want to say lost years, but years that you could have been doing better.
1: Lost years, I think is the brilliant way to put it. If I'm being completely transparent with you, I very often look back at my twenties and go, I don't remember a lot of it. I don't have memory. Um, I have, you know, long-term repercussions of, of, of being on SSRIs or antidepressants. I have long-term repercussions uh, of the other medication. Uh, there was an undiagnosed traumatic brain injury due to the over medication. So that took a long time. We just got healing for that last year. So it definitely, you know, my st- here's the crazy thing and the wild part about this. My story is not even my story is not even different. You know, there's a, a million of us veterans that have almost an identical story an over-medication, a lack of support and unwillingness by the VA and a loss of memory because of over-medication and trauma. So for me, I've, you know, I've been married for 13 years, you know, I've been with my husband for 13 years. I have a child. Uh, I want to be the best version of a human being that I can. I see all these other men healing and getting better and being good husbands. And I say, well, this is, this is different you know, I'm a woman and we heal differently. Medication affects us differently. Everything affects everyone differently. And I just wanted to be what I knew I could be, which was a present mom, a good wife, a you know, a happy wife more than anything else, a happy mom more than anything else. Because ultimately, we know that the mother's health is a direct re- uh, reflection of what the child will be like. So kids feel things, man, they feel everything. And when you're angry and when you're frustrated and you're struggling, your child will feel that. And when they push back at you, they're pushing back at the energy you're giving to them. And we're so quick to say it's the kid's fault, but most of the time it's the adult for not for, you know, for bleeding on everyone else around us. When we don't know how to heal ourselves, the cuts we have from trauma, they bleed on everyone else, and we have to find a way to fix them. So, I've done my very best to try to be, uh, you know, change the game, be a present mom, be an example, be a leader in that, be a good wife, show that you can do all of these things, as long as you have the right support network around you.
0: Um, I haven't talked to a million vets in your situation, but I've talked yeah, to it. But I've talked, but I've talked to enough who talk about being over medicated or um, you know, whatever else problems with their treatment as well. Meaning as is, 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 is the doctors and medical staff may have wanted to be, um, of you all, um, you also aren't the first that have tried psychedelics to help you and that have said it really did. Um, you say, I, uh, ayahuasca in your case helped, um, explain what that is for people who don't know. And, and what do you think it did to your brain or for your brain?
1: So, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I'm a big uh, advocate for plant-based medicines in all all ways. I believe they are the future as well as I believe they are the thing that's going to save our community from itself. And I believe that wholeheartedly, or I wouldn't be doing the advocacy work I am. Uh, I was so fortunate to have a former army ranger named Matthew Griffin from Combat Flip-Flops notice that I was struggling in a different way. He could see it. He brought up ayahuasca to me, which then led me to Heroic Hearts Project, which is founded by another army ranger named Jesse Gould this organization, this 5013C in America takes veterans to go sit with medicine and does integration counseling on the front end and the back end and creates a community. And that's the most important part is the loss of the community and the identity. I was able to go sit with ayahuasca. I've now sat a handful of times. And what it does is it puts you in a state where your body is forced and your mind is forced to let go. The medicine is strong. It is from, you know, it originates in Peru. It is all over the world. It's grown all over the world in a lot of different places, but it's the Shakruna leaf and the ayahuasca vine uh, brewed together in this tea in a very intentional way by uh, by the indigenous people that make this magic. And um, it is truly unworldly. It is an experience that I wish every single veteran on the face of this earth could have the chance to sit with so that they could heal to the depths in which I know it can provide healing. Now saying that I also um, is somebody who uses psilocybin, which is mushrooms for microdosing as well as as an antidepressant property. And all that really does is it, you know, it allows the, the regeneration of neurons in the brain, it slaps a fresh uh, layer of snow down, if you will, and allows new connections to be formed. And that's really what ends up ne- needs to happen because you have these loops that happen, these feedback loops after you have trauma to the brain. And if you can break the feedback loop, you can start to do the work and get yourself out of that fight or flight and into the parasympathetic nervous system state, which is a calmer state to be in, which is where you can see things rationally. You can have conversations. You're not a reactive human being. And so you know psychedelics coupled with traumatic brain injury treatment we're we're looking at a game changer. You know, this is a different thing. We don't need medication. We need different intervention and support and we need research, which we're getting, thank God. Thankfully to so to so many of these charities that are doing it and these universities, we're finally getting answers we need to heal the veteran space.
0: Well, and there's a, as you know, there's a stigma around psychedelics. Um uh you know for decades now and it it's interesting to me that you call it sat with the medicine and not took the medicine what how come
1: because the medicine opens up and the medicine is not just a plant the medicine very often has an energy or a deity or a, a an emotion not an emotion a um The medicine is powerful and it connects you to something deeper. So many people say it connects you directly to source. You sit with God, you see your ancestors. Like there's all of these very fantastical stories that come from sitting with medicine. But ultimately, I'm ingesting something more powerful than myself that I don't fully understand. But what I do understand is it connects me to something greater, something so much greater that I could never imagine having the privilege of being in the presence of. And when you do that, the medicine gives you only what you need, not what you want. So it may be hard and it may be painful, but I promise you, when you come out on the other end, you're not only going to heal, you're going to have the ability to heal. Most of the time, you know, there's the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Trauma sits in the body, whether we like it or not, whether we want to admit, you know, that's woo-woo or not, it does. Science proves it. And so when you're able to work with a medicine that allows you to maybe either disassociate or is a hallucinogenic or allows you to be present enough in your body, but to do the work, meaning to dive into the stuff that no one wants to talk about again, to dive into the painful moments and see the visuals again. It gives you the moment of pause. It gives you the time to step back outside of yourself and rationalize what you've just seen, and then hopefully come out the other end feeling stronger and ready to do the work. Because ultimately, plant-based medicine, when you sit with medicine, that's only the beginning it's the work afterwards it's the integration part afterwards meaning safe set and setting integration with a with a trained uh coach or counselor on the back end to make sure that you are handling the what can be you know the shaking of reality right. your reality
0: um you host a podcast too mm-hmm. um hearing stories like like hearing back stories like yours from other veterans and other people um who are going through some stuff um now, the rights to the book are already sold to make it into a movie or t v show. What's that process been like?
1: That's weird <laughs> it's a, it's a, <laughs> i don't I don't think anybody ever thinks and and it wasn't like the goal. I wasn't like a child that was like someone's gonna make a movie about my life one day. I was like, i'm gonna be me, and we'll see what this path looks like um For me, I came back from, you know, ultimately, I did a charity event uh, with a friend of mine. We do this thing on Remembrance Day, which is Veterans Day, November 11th. And Neil McDonough and his wife, Ruvay, and their five children came to my charity event uh, that we host with my buddy. And he said, like, look, we like you. We think you're cool. If you're ever doing anything, you know, just keep us, here's our phone number. Just keep us in the loop. So I called them one day and said, look, I have a book I'm working on they read it i went and sat with uh ayahuasca and uh the day after i got home from sitting with the medicine just asking for guidance and healing my pain i got a phone call from neil and Rube, and it was hey we want to we want to do this we want to produce this into either a tv series or a feature film ultimately that will be up to the financing but we would like a limited series we would like to turn it into one and um we want to take the rights and if you're up for that we want to turn your life." Uh, and put it on the screen because when you have people like Neil McDonough who come from Band of Brothers and you have this family who cares so deeply about veterans and their healing and this space, it's hard to say no. (laughs) You go, okay, cool. I'm here for the ride. And now, you know, I've met with some people that potentially will be playing me, which is a very uncomfortable situation to be in. But I think the thing I've learned the most about it is if you have a story or you have something that has happened to you in life, it happened to you in your life. You can't allow it to break you. You have to let it shine. It will heal others. And that's why you see so much success with people like Marcus Luttrell. And you see success with the Black Rifle guys. And you see success with other veterans uh, telling their stories. It's because there is a need for it. There is a need for people to see that you can heal through really horrific things and that it doesn't have to be the thing that breaks you. You can be cracked from it, but cracks can be fixed and it opens the rest of the world up to what really happens in war on the female side, as well as the male side. We don't have a ton of female stories, so I'm kind of throwing myself into the fire here and going, it's going to be what it's going to be, but at least I know hopefully one day it'll help. One person, one mother, one wife, one veteran, one first responder. Go, I can do all of these things, and I can heal too. It doesn't have to be the end of my story.
0: Well, Kelsey, I'm glad that um, you are where you are. You seem to be uh, you seem to be doing okay. Uh, the, bra- uh, the, the, the the jewelry and eyewear company uh, is called Brass and Unity. The book is also called Brass and Unity: One Woman's Journey Through the Hell of Afghanistan and Back. Kelsey, it's good to talk to you. Thank you.
1: I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast, bringing you closer to the story than you ever thought possible. Subscribe at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. These are the stories that keep you up at night.